to Community Christian Anywhere. We are an online community of people who believe that even though life can be difficult and complicated and tiring, Jesus offers a life that is easy, light, and full of rest. And the life Jesus offers isn't simply a membership to a religion or a personal philosophy of life. He offers to transform us into people who live and love just as He did in this world. And so we want to be a community who are committed to loving everyone just as Jesus has loved us. And so no matter who you are or what you believe about God or what you've done, we want you to be a part of this Jesus movement to love everyone always. And what we hope is that throughout our time together, you will experience that God loves you and He cares about your life. In fact, we say this all the time, no matter what you think about God, we believe He can't stop thinking about you. We believe that He is for you and He only has good things for your life. So no matter where you're watching from, on your phone or on your lunch break, hopefully not while you're driving, we believe that God is present with you right now. And if you stay open to that, I believe He wants to make Himself real to you. And if at any point during this video you have questions or maybe you feel like God is speaking to you and you want to speak to somebody about that, there will be a number on the screen the whole time. You can text that number at any point and our speaker for today or someone from our team will respond just as soon as we can. Because even though right now this is just a video you're watching, we hope that your interactions with us move from just being content that you consume to a community that you're committed to. And one easy way to get more involved with our community is by going to our website, cccanywhere.com. There are a lot of resources there, including some materials specifically designed for your children. And the best way for you to get involved with our community is by clicking on the card on that website that says, join our Facebook group. You'll be taken straight to our Community Christian Anywhere group on Facebook, where we can connect with each other during the week. All you have to do is click the Join Group button, and you'll take one quick and easy step into community this week. But for right now, let's get into our main idea for the day. Thanks for joining in with us today as we continue this very important series of conversations we've been calling Christians in the Age of Outrage. For this whole series, we've been asking God to help us see our fault and not point the finger at other people. Because we find ourselves in a culture where everyone's upset about everything. And to get on the solution side of things, we will have to start by not looking at them, but by saying, what do we need to do? How do we need to change? And because that's so difficult to see our own faults, we've been praying together and asking God to give us divine power and love to do it. Now, if there was ever a week that we needed this, it's gonna be this week. Because of our topic today, it's, it's one that's been a source of problems for the history of our country, the whole history. So we need divine power and we need His love from above. And we need a lot of peace in our thinking to go at this today. Before I go too far into this, I wanna make sure you remember, if you wanna say something to me, you wanna talk back to me about something, you can text the number on the screen. I'll get that today and I'll respond. But here's what I know. As soon as I start, there are gonna be people who are gonna be really uncomfortable and people that are gonna be upset with some of the things I have to say about racism and God's justice. I don't know if this has always been a huge issue or if it's a huge issue everywhere, but I know in our country, 
this is a polarizing subject. And I know some of you are tired of hearing all the talk about race and racism and systematic racism and injustice and immediately we all run to politics. It, it makes you uncomfortable. It makes some of you angry. I know because you told me that it does. You may even think it's dangerous and that the facts don't support the argument. At the same time, there are others of you who are thinking, well, it's about time. Finally, you have the guts to tackle this topic head on. You've been waiting to hear about it and you're wondering why I have not spoken on this more. Whether you think what's happening in our country over the last few months is a good thing or it's a bad thing, it's a real thing. And I know for sure it's a thing that God cares about. And I believe he wants us to look at some of the important things about ourselves, about our country, and his vision for the kingdom that Jesus came to bring and that we have been invited to join. I wanna start with a statement from God. It's given through a man named Hosea. He was a prophet thousands of years ago. He said, my people, God's people, are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. And what I take away from that is that what you don't know, it can hurt you and it can hurt others. Robert Morris, who's a pastor in Texas, when talking about this topic, he gave a great illustration and I wanna use it today. Hopefully you can see the label on this water bottle. I bet even if you're watching on a phone, you can. So on the count of three, and I know this is weird, I want you to read this label out loud, okay? One, two, three. Proof of purchase, non-carbonated Dasani. Oh, did you notice you and I said different things? See, what you saw depends on what side of the bottle you're looking at. We both were looking at the same bottle, but the only way I'm gonna know what's on your side of the bottle is if I'm willing to come over and see it from your side. Too often, when we talk about matters of race and racism, too many of us are way too content to just stay on our side of the bottle. And that's led to a severe lack of knowledge and it's destroying God's people. Now, I know I could have said it's destroying our world because it is, but in this series, we've committed to start with us, not with them. And to do in the church what we should do. And by only looking at this issue from our side, we're destroying the kingdom that Jesus came to build. And so I wanna be clear. Today, I am speaking specifically to my white brothers and sisters. If you're black, brown, Hispanic, Asian, or any other ethnicity, you are welcome in our community because the truth is, this isn't our community. This is a Jesus community and his kingdom is for all. And I love the fact that Community Christian has some ethnic diversity. In fact, it's the most ethnically diverse church I've ever been a part of. But if we're honest, the majority in our church are white. So I invite everybody to join in, but I really need to talk to my white brothers and sisters today. And I'm not a politician. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a social scientist. And I am certainly no expert on policing policy. So I'm just gonna leave all of those wrong for this whole message. But there are a couple of things that I feel pretty qualified to talk to you about. First, I've been a white man my whole life, and that's been quite a while. 
And I've been a pastor for 40 years. I've been here at Community for 30 of those years. So I know a good bit about white church folk. Here's what I know about white church people. All of us believe that people sin. We believe that we sin. Almost all white Christians believe that racism exists and that it is a sin. But almost no white Christians believe that the sin of racism exists within them. And that thought, that we aren't a part of the problem, that is a big problem. As we've been saying in this whole series, in almost every area of our life, we have a hard time seeing the truth about ourselves. It is doubly true when it comes to this issue of prejudice and racism. See, most of us are carrying a magnifying glass around looking at the problems of those people when we really need a, a mirror to see the plank in our eye. We're so ready to explore and enlarge the character flaws or the faulty arguments of others, yet we can't see our own failings. So please start with me by honestly saying to God the words of the Psalm, search me, O God, not them, not that group, not those people, but me, my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. One of the most important things white followers of Jesus need to know about the racial problem in this country is that we have one. When most of us check the box that says white on the forums that inquire about ethnicity, we have no idea just how being white in our country has influenced our life experiences and our life outcomes. So for those of you who don't know me, I'll tell you a little bit about me. I was born in Oklahoma, Mississippi. To tell you a comparable size of my hometown, there are more ninth through 12th graders at each of the high schools in Coweta County than there were all the people who lived in my little town. But it was a pretty diverse little town. In fact, I knew as many black people growing up as I did white people. I grew up in the South in the 1960s when there was a lot of struggle in our area, Mississippi, over race. I was either in the fourth or fifth grade when our schools were integrated for the first time. My dad uh, was a part of the school board that led that integration. My hometown, it's within easy driving distance of Memphis, Tennessee. And I remember the day that Martin Luther King was murdered and that I was told about that by some black men who worked on our farm. But even with all that racial tension going on around me, the one thing that nobody ever talked to me about was my white skin. If I cut myself, I'd get a Band-Aid that was called flesh-colored. And I never had the thought of what my friend George Walker thought about the flesh-colored Band-Aid on his black skin. I know for sure my parents never set me down and said, now, Ed, we are white people. And you need to be aware that because of that, that never happened because of course, no white parent ever feels the need to talk to their children about the implications of the concerns of what it means to be white. Because as most parents, uh, we mostly want to prepare our kids for the kind of things that are threats to them. And we don't see being white has, has any threat attached to it in our country. But that's not true for black parents in our country. They have to talk about it. They have to prepare their children for the potential discrimination and negotiation with whites in position of powers over them because to fail to do so, it puts their children at risk. One of my sons and his wife, they have three children of color of elementary age or younger. 
And because of the events that have happened in our world again, like they've happened before, they had the first of what I'm sure will be talks about the color of those young ladies' flesh. I had the, the sex talk with each of my sons. I never talked to any of them about race because in countless ways that I never understood, I never got the advantages built into my life just by being white. What I just described to you is just at a surface level what some social researchers have called white privilege. Okay, okay, hold on now. <laughs> I know we white people, we, we hate that phrase. I wish I had a term I could use to describe that, that it, it wouldn't trigger you. I get some of you hear it and you think that people are saying, well, all white people were rich or their families didn't have any struggles and that white people just sort of glide through life. And that's certainly not true. And I know that. And the black people in our congregation who have been courageous and gracious enough to talk to me about that, they get it too. Racial privilege doesn't have anything to do with how much or how little possessions you have or how much money you have. It's about the noticeable lack of discrimination by the majority of the people in our country based on the color of my skin. It's not about what you do have. It's about what you don't have to deal with. Now, I want to be clear, I don't run. Even when I was a young man, running as an activity just for fun, well, that was never an idea I ever had. But I know this for sure, if I'd ever wanted to run, I had no fear of going on a run through an affluent, mostly white neighborhood like Ahmaud Arbery did when he was gunned down in Brunswick, Georgia. I don't fear someone calling the police on me because I told them to put their dog on a leash like happened to Christian Cooper in New York City. I don't worry that one of my white granddaughters might get a job at a supermarket here in Coweta County bagging groceries and getting called a hateful racist term by a customer there just because he dropped his own groceries like the daughter of one of my black friends in this church suffered. But even though white privilege exists, most of us white people, we don't feel it. Why? Well, the best analogy I could come up with to explain this is the old thing you've probably heard for. It's like asking a fish, how's the water? And the response from the fish, if they could talk, would be, well, what's water? I mean, since water is the only an environment a fish has ever experienced and can even imagine, they can't describe it. It, it, just, it just is. And that's the experience of being white in our culture. It's the cultural stream we swim in. And more than we know, it's impacted so many areas of our lives, which gets me to the heart of what I want to talk to you about today. As difficult as it is to see prejudice in ourselves, it can be even harder to see it in the institutions we love. The best comparison I can think of is this. If you've ever had to confront physical, sexual, emotional, or substance abuse in your family of origin, then you know that not all the family members they're not always willing to look at it. Or they're not ready to acknowledge the truth that's in your family. In fact, some family members get angry. They get upset if it's even brought up and they refuse to even discuss it. It's as if they think, hey, as long as we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. But the truth is, as long as we keep it in the dark, it has devastating consequences, generation after generation after generation. If we want to get well, we have to say the truth. We have to deal with our unhealthy past if we want to move forward. 
And here's what I've seen so many times over and over. We can never change what we refuse to acknowledge. And if we fail to understand just how deeply embedded the roots of racism are in the soil of our country, we will be destroyed from our lack of acknowledgement of that fact. So before we go further, I just want to give you a chance to take a breath. Maybe you want to text me something about what I've seen, I said on, on the number you see on screen, but please don't miss the opportunity we're about to take, to take a moment of self-reflection. Then let's come back Please, and let's continue this conversation. As we pray, read the words in bold aloud with me. Let's pray. Father God, maker of every tongue, tribe, and nation, help our hearts to see and to acknowledge the suffering of others. We know that you draw near and lift up the poor and the powerless. Help us to see how we have failed to hear the cries of injustice in our country. Lord, we know you will protect the oppressed, preserving them forever from this lying generation, even though the wicked strut about and evil is praised throughout the land. Now, in the silence that follows, ask your Heavenly Father to open your eyes to the suffering of others. Try to lay aside any excuses or defenses that your heart may bring to your mind. Instead, simply listen to the heart of your Heavenly Father for those who have been oppressed. Let's continue to pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot know what we cannot see. So we invite you now to open our eyes to our role in this problem. Our hearts deceive us, so please remove any ideas, prejudice, or pain that keeps us from seeing clearly what you desire for each of us to see. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Now, ask your Heavenly Father to reveal to you any ways in which you have either contributed to or benefited from a racial system. Once again, your heart will defend and excuse any thoughts, words, or behaviors. But do not be defensive. Remember, there is no fear or shame for those in Christ Jesus. Let us boldly accept the words of our Heavenly Father. Once more, let's pray. Joyful are those you discipline, Lord, those you teach with your instructions. You give them relief from troubled times until a pit is dug to capture the wicked. The Lord will not reject his people. He will not abandon his special possession. Judgment will again be founded on justice and those with virtuous hearts will pursue it. We pray that these words will be true of us and that your justice will roll in our lives, through our lives and cover our land. In Jesus' precious and powerful name we pray, amen. So since I'm a white church guy, let me share with you some United States white church history. It's painful to admit, but it's really important to understand. It was 400 years ago last year that the first African slaves were kidnapped from Africa and sold in Jamestown, Virginia. At about the same time, the pilgrims were landing at Plymouth Rock. About 20% of the population of those colonies, they were black. To put that in perspective, back, black population in our country today is just a little over 12.5%. An Anglican bishop in the American colonies 
at that time, felt that he had to issue a decree that just because a slave got baptized and came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life, that did not mean that that slave would be set free from slavery. The reason he had to qualify that is because the founding church, of the Anglican Church in America, the Church of England, it had already declared the opposite in England. Most, maybe the most famous Puritan preacher in American history was a guy named Cotton Mather. He taught that becoming Christians would make slaves better slaves, and that it was sinful pride for an African slave to ever want to be set free. George Whitfield, the most prominent preacher of what became known as the Great Awakening, taught that slavery was God-ordained and that bondage would lead to the salvation of the heathen Africans. From 1846 to the Civil War, almost every major Christian denomination split over this issue of slavery. History reports that every Southern Methodist Episcopal bishop was a slave owner during this time. And if you ever wonder why there are Southern Baptists or why there's a Southern Methodist University, it's because of the issue of slavery. Even as late as the late 19th century and early 20th century, way after the Civil War. The two most prominent white evangelists of that generation, Dwight L. Moody and Billy Sunday, proclaimed the gospel to audiences that were segregated so that nobody who was African-American was allowed to sit next to white people to hear the good news that Jesus had died for every human being to make them right with God and right with each other. In doing this, the white church in the United States and the hard but true words of one writer We signed the moral permission slip of slavery and later segregation to the point where Sunday morning is still in most places the most segregated hour of the week. I don't know how to say this any clearer than to say, brothers and sisters, this should not be. A Christian historian named Dr. Martin Knoll has written a book called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. Dr. Noel writes about how the theological crisis in the Civil War actually involved two issues, not just one. One was obviously slavery, but the other was racism. Noel points out that even in those sections of the country where they were anti-slavery, very few white people in those parts of the country were wrestling with what the scripture had to say about racism. According to Dr. Noel, almost every white Christian in the North as well as the South believed in the inferiority of the black race. Even the vast majority of white Americans who were against slavery, they weren't in full of in favor of full racial equality or the dignity and integration of them into our society. So the greatest failure of the church in America in the mid-19th century was not just the failure to preach against slavery, it was a failure to preach against the sin of racism, which is a systematic oppression of people simply because of their race. If the Church of Jesus Christ had stood united against the evil of racism, slavery slavery would probably have collapsed in a day. But sadly, the Church of Jesus, it didn't do that. Therefore, it took the bloodiest war in U.S. history to stop slavery. And yet, that war in no way ended the evils of racism in our country. Instead, It went marching right on through the days of Reconstruction and separate but equal segregation and Jim Crow laws and countless other ways that across our country denied the dignity and opportunities that gutted generations. And any look at history, it shows that. But some of us, we just refuse to see it. 
Someone used this analogy. Two explorers enter a cave with the most elaborate spider webs in the cave. One of them can't locate a spider and therefore refuses to believe that a spider exists. The other replies, you see the webs, the spider is implied. Racial prejudice is the implied spider that's woven in the web of policies and practices and inequalities and abuses that have constrained black Americans for over 400 years. And and again, let me just be as clear as I can. The white church by and large has either been complicit or silent as it happened in our country. And I have been a leader in that church for 30 years. And maybe I haven't been clear enough here at Community. This is not the way of Jesus, and we have to stand against it. And and I know it's somebody you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, Ed, just just leave it alone and teach us the Bible. I'm so glad you asked me to do that. I think because we've lived in it so long, most of us fail to realize how revolutionary Jesus and his community that he started, the view that all humans were equal, how Revolutionary that was in the Roman world. How truly disruptive the good news of Jesus was to the systems of prejudice and racism of their time. So let me show you a couple of things from the Bible to consider. The first, it's a quote from a follower of Jesus named Paul, who is most responsible for non-Jewish people like me ever hearing the name Jesus. In fact, Acts 17, uh, the writer records Paul saying, and God has made of one blood, all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. That verse was a favorite verse of 19th century anti-slavery abolitionist. And it was a really difficult teaching for pro-slavery Southerners. The idea that God only created one race, the human race, and that we all share a common origin, that idea, Southerners knew it had huge implications that every human being had common dignity, common worth, and common value. It meant that, and it means, racism is just wrong. I'll give you another thing that I think has huge implications. It's this. The disciples were first called Christian at Antioch. Now, I get that might not look much like much to you, but let me tell you why it's so important. Antioch was one of the great cities of the ancient world. When the church first started, all the followers of Jesus were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Twelve closest followers of Jesus were ethnically Jewish. But as persecution continued to rise in Israel, Christians began to leave Israel, and they, they shared the good news of Jesus everywhere they went. The city of Antioch, it was the first major church outside of Jerusalem. It was in this church for the first time that Jews and Gentiles started reaching across ethnic lines and they started loving each other and they helped each other and they served each other and they learned from each other. They shared meals together. They worshiped together. They became friends with each other. It's hard for us to imagine. Nothing like that had ever existed in the world before that. Up until then, every religion on earth had been a tribal ethnic religion except for these followers of Jesus. And it mostly still is today. But this Jesus movement in Antioch, it's now racially diverse. It's unprecedented. And the people in Antioch, they don't don't know what to call it. In fact, we're told these amazing words about this church. 
Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon from Niger, Lucius from Cyrene, Manum, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. Now, you know why Luke, the author, gives us the names and geographical backgrounds of these guys? Well, because Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus and Simon was from Niger, which is a sub-Saharan African country. Lucius was born in Cyrene, which is on the northern coast of Africa. Manum, he's the rich kid who was raised with the son of King Herod in Israel. And Saul, he's from Tarsus in Asia Minor. In other words, that church had a leadership team composed of two Jews, two black guys, and one Arab. The Jesus community, it invented racial diversity. So the people, the people in Antioch, they see that odd thing happening. I mean, nothing like it in their world. It's obviously not a Jewish sect anymore. It's something else entirely. So they have to come up with a new name for these people who love everyone always. And so they just call them Christians or little Christ after the one who prayed that his father would make all of his followers to be one. The one who said that the way people would know that we follow him would be the way that we love as he loved us. The one who told his Jewish followers to go to every nation and make disciples. The one who died to destroy the dividing wall between human beings. Christian, as it's used only a couple of times in all of the Bible was a word to describe a community of people who really did stand for justice for all. A place where everyone was welcome because everyone was love. You want Bible truth? The church was the first community in the history of the world where prejudices and stereotyping and racial hostility of one group of privilege over another group, it was demolished in the name and power and presence and love of Jesus Christ who came for all. That was back then in Antioch. They were Christians. Can you imagine that God who made one from one blood, people of every nation, that one day he'd look at our church because we stood, we really stood for justice for all. And we loved all. And we gave up our privilege for the sake of all. That people in our day might look at Community Christian and say, they're a bunch of little Christ over at Community Christian. God, I pray that you make it so. I want to say to you as your pastor what I said to our church several years ago about the problem of poverty in our world. This is a great big problem. And we can't do everything it'll take to fix the racial divide in our country. But we can do something. And as much as I can, I intend to lead us to do something. Because we are one at the foot of the cross of Jesus. We stand in his name and his power, and we must try to become one in his name. Now we're moving into a time in our service where we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in the way that he asked us to by taking emblems of bread and juice to remember his body and blood given for us. We call this time communion, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you can use whatever elements you have on hand as we join in this meal. It can be a piece of bread or a cracker to represent Jesus' body, and a cup of juice or even just water to represent His blood. The symbols we choose are not as important as what we're remembering. So get whatever you have on hand right now 
And if you're new to this whole church thing, even though you may not feel comfortable taking part in this time, I hope you'll still stay engaged. Because communion isn't just a moment where we remember the forgiveness and eternal life Jesus purchased when He gave His body and blood for us on the cross, but we also remember the new covenant, the new agreement between God and people that was formed with Jesus' death. You see, Jesus didn't just die only for our personal sins to be forgiven. Jesus' death also gave birth to a new humanity, a new kingdom of people who live with Jesus as our King. One writer of the Bible, Paul, spoke about Jesus' death in this way. But now, in King Jesus, you have been brought near in the King's blood. Yes, you, who used to be a long way away. In particular, Paul is talking about the racially segregated Jews and Gentiles. Paul continues, He is our peace, you see. He has made the two to be one. He pulled down the barrier, the dividing wall, that turns us into enemies of each other. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. In Jesus' body on the cross, He not only removed the separation of sin between God and people, but the dividing wall of hostility between peoples. He has made us into one new humanity, united in the all-powerful, cleansing blood of Jesus. And in communion, we not only thank God for what Jesus has done in removing our personal sins, but we celebrate the work of reconciliation God is doing between us and other people. We remember that in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters with people from every nation, ethnicity, and language. Racism, tribalism, nationalism has no place at the table of Jesus. We are all welcome here. So for followers of Jesus, let's take the bread. This is the body of Jesus given for you for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Take, eat, and remember. This is the blood of Christ, poured out to create a new agreement between God and people. It was in this blood that Christ broke down all divisions between people and created one new humanity. So let's drink and remember. For when we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we are proclaiming the reconciling power of Jesus' death and His kingdom for all people. Amen. So how do we start to do something? Well, many Christians over the last few months have shared a verse that always comes up in troubling times. Even if you aren't a Bible person, you've probably seen this verse on social media. It says, If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. Now let me be clear, all, all the promises in that verse, they aren't for us, but the call to action in that verse, it certainly applies to us. So that's where I'm calling us to start. Let's apply this verse to the generational sin of prejudice and racism in our culture. So here's what I'd love 
where I'd love for you to start. White brothers and sisters, listen. The first call to action is for God's people to humble themselves. Listening requires it. One of the biggest problems in most conversation about race is that we're only talking to people who are on our side of the bottle. In fact, many of us don't even acknowledge there is another side of the bottle. For example, in, in survey after survey, black people cited race and racial discrimination as factors that shape their life and, and experiences and outcomes. While many white people they downplay the significance of race and racism and they say things that behind it like, hey, we had a black president and they have equal rights and I've never mistreated a black person and I have black friends, they agree with me. I'm telling you, just talking to people on your side of the bottle, it, it, bottle it's not gonna get us where we need to be. We need to listen and learn. And to that end, we're gonna be providing opportunities for you to do just that in, in, in the future. Here's something else we need. We need to move toward God. If my people will pray and seek my face. So I invite you to join us this week. Talk to God about this in our guided prayer times. If you haven't joined in with us on that yet, just like our Facebook page or subscribe on our YouTube channel and you'll get these med meditations daily sent to you. In this time, these daily meditations, ask God to reveal to you his heart on this matter, not what you've always believed. And before you listen to the words from people, you should be listening to God's word and hear his desire for justice on this matter. You know, I think the power of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was an was not just his charismatic personality or his great speaking gift, which were so obvious. It was that his sermons, they were saturated with justice-based scripture. You may not know it, but what we know is the I Have a Dream speech, it, he quotes the biblical prophet Amos, but let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Also the prophet Isaiah, and every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked ways made straight, and the rough places plain. His ability was certainly persuasive, but it was his use of God's word that gave him power and moral authority. We need to lean into what God says on this, and then we need to lead with conf confession and, and repentance. And confession and repentance doesn't mean that I, we apologize for the color of our skin. I mean, I had nothing to do with that. But it does mean we stop denying the reality of our culture of racism, the sins that we have not stood against. Dr. Tony Evans said, racism isn't a bad habit. It's not a mistake, it's a sin. So the answer is not sociology, it's theology. I believe that's true. That's why I'm glad I'm a follower of Jesus. He's the one that revealed to us that God can be called Father and that we can confess any sin to him and he's faithful and just and if we'll walk in his ways, he will bless our lives and heal our land. And the place that that starts is with we, the church. After all, at the core of the church is reconciliation. It's at our very center. In a community where there's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor male nor female, 
We're all one in Christ, a place where everyone's welcome because no one's perfect, where we love everyone always. And that's only possible because of the amazing grace that God has for us all. Now today, I, I want to end with us singing together what's a very familiar song across, across ethnicities and countries. But before I do it, I wanna show you something about this amazing song, Amazing Grace, that many of you don't know. For instance, many of you may not know that the writer of this Christian song that's sung around the world was a man named John Newton. And he was a captain of a British slave ship, bringing people from West Africa to England as slaves. But at some point, God's amazing grace reached him in that life and convicting him that it was wrong. And he left being a ship's captain and he became a preacher. And he wrote this great song. But that is not all of the story. So before we sing this together, I want you to hear what's behind the music. And remember, you can text me about any of that we talked about today, the number on the screen. But for now, let's watch this together. An old black lady in Alabama told me this story. She said to me one day, she said, did you know that just about all Negro spirituals were written on the black notes of the piano? <laughs> you look skeptical. <laughs> so I brought a camera and a piano to prove to you what I'm talking about. You can go home tonight and play almost any Negro spiritual if you just play the black notes on the piano. Watch, there are five black notes on the piano. And you can play any Negro spiritual, just play those notes, watch. You know that? Every time I Come on, you remember, you learned that in school. How about this one? That's because the slaves didn't come to America with do, re, mi, fa, so, la, di, da. That's somebody else's scale, okay? All they had in their musical scale were those five notes. We know it in music as the pentatonic scale, and they built the power and pathos of the Negro spiritual on five notes. When you study music, you also come across what are known as white spirituals. Yes. And they're often white composers who would work with this scale. They used to call Negro spirituals slave songs, and many call this scale the slave scale. And I'm going to play for you what some musicologists think is the most famous white spiritual built on the slave scale or just the black notes. Anybody know who wrote that song? Thank you. A man by the name of John Newton, but do you know what John Newton did before he became a Christian? He was the captain of a slave ship. 
and many believe, heard this melody that sounds very much like a West African sorrow chant and wrote the words Amazing Grace and set his words to a slave melody. I believe that song was written just the way it's supposed to have been written so that we would be reminded that whether black or white, we're all in this together. We really are. And I went to the Library of Congress and I looked up that song and wherever you see it authentically printed, you know what it says? Words, John Newton, melody, unknown. Do you know how many people's lives have been changed by that song? By someone named unknown who had the gene. The HPLP gene. I'm going to close by sharing this song with you. By the way, somebody put it up on YouTube. <laughs> and it is now the most watched inspirational video of any kind by an inspirational artist. I sing the first verse. I imagine the way John Newton probably first heard it, coming up out of the belly of a slave ship. Amazing grace, 
the Lord has promised good to me his word my hope secures he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures my chains are gone i've been set free my God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. I hope today's experience was meaningful for you and that what you take away most of all is that God is for you and that we are too. And if anything today raised questions for you or maybe you felt like God was speaking to you and you want to talk to somebody about that, please text the number on the screen right now and someone from our team will get in touch with you. And as always, we want your experience with us to be more than just content you consume, but a community you can be committed to. So please take a moment right now and go to our website, cccanywhere.com, to find out how you can get more connected with us here. There are ways to get involved in virtual small groups to discuss what you're learning here, and there's even resources for your children. But the best way to get involved with our community is by clicking on the card on that website that says, join our Facebook group. That link will take you straight to the Community Christian Anywhere group on Facebook, where you can click the join group button and you'll just take one easy step into getting more involved in our community here. I hope to see you there. And as you leave today, please carry this thought with you. No matter what you think about God, He can't stop thinking about you.